0: But truly, I think it starts with the work of identity, right? Can, how do we better understand ourselves? Because I think if we can develop positive identities and, and people who are confident in themselves, then, then we can move on to understanding justice and injustice within our school systems so that we can create positive changes for our communities.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest-growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How can teachers help students assert positive identities so they have the confidence necessary to achieve academic success and advocate for social justice in their schools and communities? What are some strategies teachers can use to infuse language concepts into content lessons while simultaneously providing students with the skills they will need to be successful in school and beyond? Why is it so important for teachers to have a network or professional family to rely on for their professional learning and support, and what are some ways to find one? We discuss these questions and much more with 2021 Minnesota Teacher of the Year, Natalia Benjamin. Natalia teaches high school ethnic studies and multilingual learners in Rochester, Minnesota. She is duly licensed in K 12, ESL, and reading and holds a master's degree in language acquisition and teaching. She advocates for multilingual and multicultural education and is part of Education Minnesota's Facing Inequities and Racism in Education Racial Equity Advocates Program, where she has worked on cultural competency trainings. She is a member of several organizations that support teachers and students. Some of them are Education Minnesota League of Latinx Educators. Employees of Color Resource Group, Rochester Education Association, and the Women's Issues Committee for the National Education Association. She is passionate about the liberation of marginalized students and works on important issues such as identity work, heritage speakers, and humanizing pedagogies in education. I found our conversation both inspirational and practical. Enjoy our conversation with 2021 Minnesota Teacher of the Year, Natalia Benjamin. Natalia Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations and congratulations on becoming the first educator of Latin American heritage to win Minnesota Teacher of the Year. That is super exciting.
0: Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here today.
1: Yeah, we reached out because I read an article about the work you're doing. I was really intrigued by it. There's a lot of of things in here I think that will be kind of a crossover to a lot of other episodes that we've done. And one thing that we've talked a lot, a lot about, particularly during the pandemic, is the topic of building relationships with students. And that's where I want to start, because it's been, I think, a key part of your success and a key part of, I think, a lot of really good teacher success as well. Um, You wrote, uh, and I'm going to quote you, I have a few quotes that I'm going to supply here during this conversation. You wrote, the most important thing I can do to turn around statistics is to build relationships with students. And again, it's something we talk about a lot, particularly since the pandemic, but you take it a step further by this um, this expression you use about asserting positive identities. So talk with us about what that means to you and, and how you go about doing it with your students.
0: Sure. I, I think um, students that come into my classroom many times have come from hard beginnings or have had challenging experiences in life. And so when they are Trying to navigate the school system and just trying to figure out who they are and trying to uh, do their work so that they can graduate from high school, um, they have many challenges. And so many times, it's really easy to um, to focus on those things that are, you know, visually easier to see, which is um, not sometimes not being there or sometimes having their head down or sometimes. Um, not turning in assignments and and all of these sort of challenges that come um, with being in a class when you have a lot of other things happening in life. And so it's, it's really helped me to try to understand where students are coming from so that I can better uh, help them and be a, a support system for them so that they can find successes. And so I think that as I try to get to know them and they understand that I am there to help them, not to uh, just bust them, right? Mm-hmm. Like I am there to, to make sure that, that they can find success. Um, I think I have found a lot of positive responses from them. Um, many times... They may not be able to change the circumstances around their challenges, but I think that just knowing that somebody is there to advocate for them helps them find some success. And so when they find a hurdle or when they have questions or when they want to sign up for extracurriculars or when they need to know... Um, How do they sign up for a class they want to take, then they feel comfortable coming to me and then I'm able to connect them to somebody that has the answers that they're looking for. And so it's really important for me that they know that they matter as individuals and that their success is important um, in the midst of sometimes very challenging situations
1: yeah in 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 the end, it's actually pretty simple, but something that we can get away from, I think, when we're so highly focused on academics and instruction and curriculum. Um, and I, I think thankfully, there's been, again, a spotlight sort of focused on that during the pandemic, the idea of relationship building, and my hope is that um, is that we can run with that. And you know, you the, sort of transitioning into my next question, you know, you're working to help students um, who are learning English, right? And that's a part of your role and a part of anybody's role who's working with multilingual learners. But for you, and again, I would say for most really good teachers in this field, um, that's just one element of the children's education. You just mentioned being an advocate. Um, You mentioned things that went beyond academics, making sure that somebody, a student, for example, has the ability to join a club or do something outside of school and you being able to help with that. I think that's really important. But then you go into this, um, this idea of infusing issues of language justice and how power is created um, in your lessons. Um, wh- what does that do for you? Well, first of all, tell us a little bit about how you do that. And then I'd love to know what um, what that does to improve outcomes for students or what you're hoping to do with that.
0: Sure. Um, I think as multilingual learners come to the United States, that's an incredible amount of pressure on learning English, which is is an economic uh, advantage, right? To being able to speak the language of the community so that you can have job opportunities and just be able to, um, to be involved in your community. And with that, there's a lot of sometimes forces that work against um, home maintenance, home language maintenance of the languages uh, students come with. Um, sometimes as first generation immigrants, sometimes they're second or third immigration, uh, generation immigrants. And so I try to um, to frame their experiences within um, historical and societal um, attitudes and expectations. And so one text that I've tried to uh to read, and and we use it as a framework, is the work of um, Richard Rees with language orientations. And so that helps them understand um, the push towards monolingualism versus the push towards multilingualism. And it gives them a language to understand their experiences. And so after we sort of study these ideas, then we use it as a framework when we're doing some of the text analysis. One of the texts that we studied last year was Code Talker. um, And and this is the story of, um, it's a historical fiction of a boy who goes into um, the Indian boarding schools and it's denied the, the experience of using their language throughout their whole educational system, just to be asked to use it later as they become um, co-talkers in uh, during World War II, mm-hmm. so that the, that can be used um, in, you know, as, a, as a tactic of communication. And so the, they're able to use this framework of when were languages valued and when were they not, and then they can um, apply that to their own personal and individual lives and they can find similarities or differences within their experience. And I think that helps them not only better understand their experience, but it empowers them to be able to label um, what is going on within their communities so that they can uh, be intentional about the choices that they make uh, with their
1: own use of languages, yeah, that, that's amazing. There's so much to be said about that. I mean, it's like we we talk about um, uh, meta metalingual awareness or meta, and all of that stuff, like understanding the role of language and when you use uh, your home language versus another language, and what situations, and even different registers of whatever language you're speaking. That is very like highfalutin academic research based stuff. But you're, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm going down the wrong path. But you seem to be really breaking this down in a way that students can understand. By in this case using, I think probably what is a what is a fascinating read in Code Talkers to understand that, and the other work that you mentioned earlier. Um, And so it it appears to me that you're being very very strategic about the texts that you're sharing um, with your students. I'm going to go on, but before I do, I want to make sure that I'm right. A bit is that accurate? What I just said.
0: Yes. And I think that's, that's my goal is trying to find texts that um, that they can make connections with when it comes to language experiences. And I think that's very valuable for them to, to make a sense of the world. And at the same time, uh, learning about histories uh, of the United States, because these are stories that may, they, they may never have heard about. And mm-hmm. so I think it, it, it helps with multiple roles, like, the, right, we're learning a little bit of history, but we're also making connections with our own experiences and trying to draw from those um, to, to shape our own decisions.
1: And, and the works you mentioned are, are works probably that are going to work with students from whatever backgrounds they're from, whatever languages they're speaking, whatever culture. And I think where people get, um, where a lot of teachers get hung up and they get really overwhelmed, understandably so, is when they're working with very diverse groups of students and they're trying to select the right, the appropriate text so that the students have something that they can sort of relate to, but also learn something from like you've just mentioned. So that's kind of the root of my next question here, which is, I understand why you chose those two texts, and I think they're genius, and I think they can be applied to, uh, to other um, teachers who are working around the country as well. But how do you go about selecting texts that are going to resonate for all students, given the, the level of diversity that we're thankfully and delightfully seeing in our schools?
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely very tricky, and so it just means that um, during the summer I'm always reading something new, and even um, you know during the school year, it's it's always just trying to read more text so that I'm aware of things that that connect to the curriculum and that can also connect with their English classes that they're learning and trying to weave all those things together so that definitely um, can be overwhelming and tricky I think part of um what tends to make things a little bit easier is connecting with other educators and maintaining um those network relationships so that we're not trying to do all this work on our own and so um trying to find other educators that are doing similar work so that we can support each other in trying to find the texts that would work the best.
1: Yeah. Another important topic. I think we'll get to that a little later when we talk about professional learning, but I, I totally agree. I mean, having networks um, of people because one person, no matter how hard you work, um, isn't going to be able to find all the texts that are going to be available. And uh, I think for the sake of sanity, given everything that's on teacher's plates, you also need to have something that you can read that you don't have to have notes next to so that you're always thinking you need to have some reading for pleasure that you don't have to worry too much about. Although I'm sure all the books that you're reading um, for this purpose must be really fascinating.
0: Yeah, definitely. Lots to learn about um, you know, different populations in the United States and the history uh, of this country. So lots of material out there for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um the other thing that I wanted to dive into that I was really fascinated about about the work that you're doing is um, I, I read that you're you're using you use visual notes to help deliver instruction more effectively. I know very little about it. I've certainly never used it as a high school teacher, which I was for 17 years. Never used anything like that, to my knowledge, unless I use it without knowing I was using it. So first, let us know um, uh, for those who might not know what it is or, or are new to it, like me, what that is, um, and then if you could walk us through how visual notes can be used to support multilingual learners. Maybe give us an example of how you use them.
0: Sure. Um, so visual notes is this idea that we can, we, we don't have to write everything down in words, right? We can represent ideas with shapes, um, but as well as just different colors and just marking our our notes in a different way. Um, Many times, uh, maybe students are trained on just how to take their visual notes. uh, And that's a very high level task because you are required to get an idea or a concept and then figure out how do you represent that um, visually. And so instead of asking the students how to do that, what I have found is that I can take a very difficult text Um, And sort of break it down into the main ideas and then find a way to represent that in a visual way so that students can get um, both high level content, um, acquire vocabulary that is, you know, academic and then have a way to remember these things. And so um, as we read a little bit of research, right, you know that when you are doing things visually, and then with language, then your brain is working in different ways. So that will help with the retention process. So as students are drawing things, they're making connections um, with concepts and ideas, and that will help them to better understand and retain the concepts. And so um, I have an example, so I think I can share my screen. And this is actually related to the language orientations. And so I'll pause for a sec I while use. you're
1: doing that and tell you. So if you're watching this on YouTube, we have a YouTube channel at Elevation. If you search for Elevation Education, you'll see it there. So you see it if you're on YouTube. If you're not, and you're listening to this in the podcast, we will share this in the link on the show notes and the accompanying blog post. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to. No, no,
0: thank you. Um, and this one in particular has a lot of notes just because the a lot of the concepts were abstract. And so it's harder to find some visuals. Uh, but you can see that You know, there's three big ideas to these language orientations, so there's three columns, I use different colors, Um, and then just trying to find small uh, ways that some ideas can be done in pictures. Um, I've used this technique also to summarize um, notes for government classes that we've done in the summer. Um, and also from some foreign economics class. And these work really well, especially when there are processes that can be represented visually. Um, so a science class would be also a great way to incorporate these, right? Where instead of taking notes about how things work, you can visualize the processes um, on, on paper with you know, arrows and colors and different icons. And so that's a way to, to incorporate um, all these abstract ideas and to help students uh, better understand them. And so the next step, because a lot of times they'll just go and try to copy them, right? Especially if they've missed uh, class, they'll just rewatch the video and, and copy these things. But the next thing that I ask my students is, okay, you have the visual notes. Now go ahead and explain these concepts, to a partner or record yourself on the Flipboard so I can hear your explanation so that I can see what your understanding of these concepts are. And so um, it's, it's worked really well for me for them to, to connect these different pieces and still have a, a support of the ideas that they can use as we move to use the framework for text analysis um, later on.
1: Let me ask one follow-up question with that, because what you just showed us, and again, those of you watching on YouTube, saw it, um is something that you created, correct?
0: Um, the notes, yes, I created. But I have to give credit to a college teacher that used it with me about 25 years ago, and he taught... Um, it was like civics, I think, or some sort of government class, um, and and he used visual notes to teach a lot of the concepts, and I just happened to remember that as I was co-teaching a government class in a summer class. So it's it's been around for a long time, right? Um, yeah.
1: And so it, your your goal then, I think, is to try to get students to do this. As well, is that right? Or is it something that only you're creating so that they can see it?
0: I think eventually uh, students can do this on their own. And so um, this is a way for me to summarize a very complex text instead of having the students read, write a chapter cover to cover and then try to break down every word. Like this is a great way to summarize a chapter Uh, for any concept uh, so that we can move on to application pieces. Gotcha. Um, There are other times when uh, we asked students to actually do this themselves. So in a class that I co-teach with Courtney Peterson, actually it's our English language art course for American literature. One of the projects that we do is that we have the students do a research on a social, um, justice movement. And so we actually walked them through, um, if, if these are some ideas, what are visuals that you can use to represent it? And then instead of writing a full on research paper, they were tasked to make an infographic to share their information. And so we taught them how to visually represent their ideas to share information. So. Um, but that requires right more time and just training the students to do right,
1: it. Right, right. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head to training, right? Like when you need to have some kind of practice with this and there will be some students, I remember teaching high school and having students who are just, just inherently good at this, right? they just That's how they took notes. They didn't even know what it was that they were doing, but they did it that way. Um, and others you know, had a hard time with it. So I think part of it is just understanding how you are as a learner and how you function, but creating them, um, first you creating them for students or anybody creating them, it has, it's an undeniable advantage, right. That, to, to be able to look at that and see things from a different perspective. And then, um, I think the, the other, the other thing that you mentioned is having students create infographics, um, in some, at some time, sort of in place of writing a research paper or in addition to, or whatever the case may be, I would argue as somebody who's in marketing, that that is like a huge important skill to be able to have. I mean, it's mostly about getting your message is mostly about getting it out effectively in a way that uses as few words as possible, especially in the world we live in now. So you're really doing two things at once, just as you were with the content and the language earlier. You're allowing students to express themselves in a way that they may not be able to do with a lot of words, given their language skills. And you're also teaching them a really applicable skill that they can use in whatever they decide to do.
0: Absolutely, and it's um and also the skill of being able to synthesize information, which right. is a lot harder <laughs> to do than than we think it is. And so they're they're learning that as well. And I think something else that I think is very important is being able to use the technology tools. And as you know, we all we all go, got thrown into this virtual world, right, for the past um, year and a half, almost two years, and um sometimes that's tricky, like the, we don't inherently teach all of these technology skills um, as well. And so I think it's important for our students to be able to navigate that as well. Like, how do we use technology to share our message?
1: Right. Great. Um, okay. So in the spirit of continuing this conversation about sort of doing, doing multiple things at, at once and finding a way to really infuse them, which is kind of the gold standard, another quote that I read of yours that I really appreciated was, um, under a traditional teaching model, language learners are taught grammar, spelling rules, and sentence structures. I completely relate to that as a former Spanish teacher. You continue by saying, I developed a better sense of how to integrate grammar into writing tasks by teaching grammar in the context of different writing genres. And as I said, this is like a gold standard for teachers. So tell us how you go about doing it and what impact you've seen it have, um, on your students. Uh,
0: sure. As, um, as, some, as someone that loves grammar, there's nothing more painful than students not wanting to do grammar.
1: <laughs> I'm right there with you. I'm also a grammar nerd, self-professed.
0: However, <laughs> we know that only teaching grammatical skills doesn't necessarily develop um, right fluency with grammatical structures and doesn't always translate into um, the practice when it comes to grammar, right? Many times students are able to, if in isolation, right, they may be able to tell you the right verb with the right conjugation or whatnot. But once you get into writing or speaking, um, a lot of that just gets lost because, you know, we're built to communicate, not necessarily check our grammar every time we speak. And so um, I I really started looking at the purpose of, of that language, right? So when I'm writing narratives, what grammatical points are important for the students to know. And so that way I can assess um, their mastery of the language through the tasks that that I'm asking them to do. So if we're going to be writing stories, like this is why it's important for you to understand um, the past tense or how to use the past perfect tense. And so we we do some grammar. um, And then when we're writing, they have... Uh, a connection, but the grammatical points so that they can go back and review the writing and so forth. And so I think connecting the grammar to the purpose, like to the why, um, really makes a difference in the students' understanding because all of the sudden it's not about, you know, how many verbs can I conjugate or can I memorize all the different irregular verbs that will be on a quiz, but it's more about, can I, um, my message in that way that's being understood. So sometimes if I'm not using the right verb, then people will not understand what I'm trying to say. And so I think that helps students to really um, connect the dots, so to speak, and to be able to also have more interesting experiences in class.
1: Yeah. And I would say the more that we can do that kind of writing activity that you just mentioned, um, outside of just strict language classes, and this gets to the idea that everybody has to be a teacher of language, the more it's going to really resonate. I mean, and this can work for everybody, whether you're a native English speaker or not. I mean, you don't necessarily have, just because you're a native English speaker or a native speaker of whatever language, the ability to use perfect grammar, right? So it's a ray of kind of bringing everybody together for, on the same task. And, and on the idea, I just can't resist, I, I, as, a, as, a, as somebody who started as a foreign language teacher in a very sort of traditional way, I didn't know how else to teach. I taught how I was taught which was the wrong idea for a few years. So I apologize to all those students I had for my first couple of years of teaching. I hope you took something out of my classes. But there is this tool that came along at one point when, when it was, and I, I started teaching over 20 years ago. So you know technology kind of came along as we, as we went through it. And um, there was this tool, you may be aware of it, that was like every, all the foreign language teachers loved it. It was called conjugamos.com, which is let's conjugate. So it was this this like very simple thing and you put a verb in and it would tell you, it ask like, it would give you the the subject and the tense and you'd have to put it in and you got points for how quickly you went. And at first it was like, this is amazing. What a great tool for to practice. And then it became this like horrible, sorry to the makers of Konju Gamos, if you're listening, but this horrible beast where it was just like grammar completely out of context. And we know that that is still happening, right? So what you're talking about is, is just so important.
0: Yeah, and I think... Um- how how do you kind of combine both right because some practice is important like yes let's understand how the verbs work um but we could spend our whole entire day just doing grammar and, and that doesn't really move us to to more complex thinking and more complex writing and more complex um communication skills and so Um, I would just say as, as you, you use some of these tools to help students really, uh, be more accurate in their grammatical expressions, um, make sure that we are embedding them within a context that, uh, that is useful for, for their communication in the long long term.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Moderation, right, is everything, I guess, um. Okay, great. So I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of circle back a little bit to uh, what you talked about with with social justice and how it fits into education because I think that's what one of my main takeaways. Wh- that was one of my main takeaways from um, from what I read um, of yours. Um, we've had conversations on highest aspirations in the podcast at a really high level about. We had talked with Dr. Jose Medina. I'm not sure if you're aware of his work, but he talks about um, lesson planning to dismantle systems of oppression and. Really inspirational stuff, has some really great ideas and really, I very much enjoyed speaking with him. And we spoke at a very high level. So I was hoping to get from you um, a little bit more specific about how you infuse that into your instruction and what you hope your students will take away. And I know we kind of scraped the surface of this a few questions ago, but I wanted to kind of delve a little more into it.
0: Uh, sure. So as I started working um, and learning from other teachers of heritage speakers, um, I developed a better understanding of the need for identity work and then just for students to understand um, the systems and the world around them so that they can be agents of change and also just be empowered to um, just to, for their self actualization and making their their dreams work. And so, something that I that I try to implement is the social justice standards, and they're from they're on the Learning for Justice uh, website. And the four core areas are identity, diversity, justice, and action. And um, our students. Um, have a lot more to say, I think, that we that, than we usually give room for them to express. And so one of the things that I really try to do is to incorporate more student voice and student choice into the classroom um, and, and try to really look at what is it that is important to them and how can I connect that back to, to what we are learning. Um, but truly, I think it starts with the work of identity, right? Can, how do we better understand ourselves? Because I think if we can develop um, positive identities and, and people who are um, confident in themselves, then, then we can move on to understanding um, justice and injustice within our school systems uh, so that we can... Uh, create positive changes for our communities. Um, I'm still working on on the action piece for for our classes. I think uh, it's better implemented in my ethnic studies class because it's part of the curriculum that we right. placed in there. Um, and we sort of always tend to to run out of time. So now that we're back in person, I- I'm really hoping that I can do that this action piece in my multilingual um, classes. But I think. When students are able to understand um, the histories that frame why things work the way they work today, I think they're able to to make connections between the past, the present, and what are things that should be changing in the future. And I think as they're able to make those connections, um, they are better equipped to change things that are not working in our communities.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I love that last piece, looking at the past, understanding the present and then being understanding what you can do in the future. Um, Those social justice standards that you mentioned, I'm not sure that many people or that everybody is aware of that that's out there. So we'll make sure that we link to that for folks to look at because I think that's really important. And I think that might provide us a way of, of, putting this theme or infusing this theme in other classes, other than classes where they're kind of a part of the curriculum, which I think is what we're trying to do with language. But if we're doing it with language, I think we also need to begin doing it um, with themes of social justice as well. And I see it kind of happening. You know, It seems to be um, getting more emphasis, which is great. So I have one more quote from you. I've given you a lot of quotes, but they're a good way to kind of ground and understand what your beliefs are and kind of learn from you. Um, and this goes back to what we talked about about professional learning. I mentioned we we're going to kind of come back to it. I know you put a, a big emphasis on it. You said the evolution of my teaching practices is in large due to the constant training, growth and learning, stemmed from opportunities provided by education, Minnesota, and the NEA. Um, and so clearly, you've had good experiences with professional learning. Um, I, I can't say that I that all the professional learning that I had over my teaching career was positive or even useful. I had some that were incredible, and those are the ones that I remember. So what are some um, examples of professional learning or professional development opportunities that have helped you become the educator you are today? And then on the other side, what kind of of professional learning should we be moving away from, particularly in light of the pandemic, where I think people kind of realized that there is a new and perhaps different way, and maybe better way, um, to go about learning?
0: Um, sure. I think to me, it's been about, um, looking at things that I am passionate about. And so because I was passionate about, uh, language learning and heritage speakers, I, I sought those opportunities. I, um, took on the grant opportunities and things that were available to, to really be able to, have access to those and so I would say when those opportunities come along like just just take them and so that's what gave me access to being able to go to the Carla Institute with the University of Minnesota that has what heritage speakers which connected me to uh, the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater who has a program for heritage speakers education. The the greatest learning that i did was with other colleagues doing similar work and so it's we we did a lot of reading yes we did a lot of um academic reading academic work and then connecting that with what we're doing in our classes and i think being able to being reflective educators and being able to ask ourselves is what i'm doing the best for my students right now, or, or like you mentioned before, right? Like I started teaching because that's how I was taught and this is what I know. And then looking at what other educators are doing and, and finding better ways to do um, what I'm trying to teach because the students that are in front of our class are, are different students than I was when I was growing up and they have different needs and different ways of mm-hmm. learning. And so Um, I think that networking is just super important and that's where I have done most of my growth as an educator.
1: Yeah, I hear that a lot and you can really, you can really, it also provides you with a lot of choice. You know, when you're working with colleagues, you can kind of decide, you mentioned sort of what's, what's passionate to you and you can kind of choose the people that you want to, uh, collaborate with while also being open to new ideas, which I think is, um, It was really exciting. I think there's a lot of opportunities for that moving forward as well. Another conversation for another time, but I wanted to make sure we hit on that because I knew that professional learning was um, was important to you. As we as we wind down, I want to kind of um, I I think it's important to mention that you you never really intended on becoming a teacher. I can relate. I didn't either. Um, And yet here you are as Minnesota Teacher of the Year. Um, You've obviously done a lot of great things for your students and for your school. I think it'd be a missed opportunity if we didn't ask you this question. What advice would you give to a teacher who's just starting their career, working with multilingual learners who are, as we know, the fastest growing student demographic in the country? Um, What's the advice that you give those, those teachers?
0: I would say learn from the community members of those students. Like what, um, What are those things that are important to them and those cultural connections that you can make? I think it's, at least in my case, it's super important to lean on our bilinguals who can connect to those families and to those students so that we can have an open communication line with those communities. I would say um, join your professional network. One of the first things that I did as a, as a teacher of multilingual students, was I started attending the uh, TISO conferences that happen every year, and that was a way to to lean into people that have already been doing this work, lean into people who were trying to be innovative in their work, and so finding those professional worker, work, uh, sorry, those professional networks, and finding the people who um, who are trying to to be better and to break down barriers and to find ways to, to make better experiences for our students. Um, I think those have been two of the things that have worked for me.
1: Yeah, and well, the common thread there is the common thread that we've had throughout this conversation, I feel like, and that's people, right? Leveraging people and, and, and relationships, which is how we started this conversation. Um, you can't do much without understanding the experiences that people are um, both positive and negative that they're going through. Um, And trying to relate as as well as you can. So yeah, I mean, leveraging the community and professional learning networks, I think, um, is great advice. And frankly, it's advice that may not really be at the top of the sort of course load for pre-teaching programs, right? I I don't know that those are stressed as much as they should be. Maybe professional learning networks, but I feel like family and community engagement um, is something that's really, really important that we hear a tremendous amount about and that I think could be we, we could do more uh, for sure to prepare teachers. So thank you. Great advice.
0: Yeah. And I would even add, um, like who's going to be your professional family, right? Who are you going to lean on when when things get hard? Because it's it's a work that we cannot do as individual teachers. And um, at least for me, it's been instrumental to find uh, other educators who who are doing similar work.
1: Yeah. People you can lean on, emotional support. I mean, let's not forget, that's not an easy job um, under normal circumstances. And certainly the last couple of years have been really difficult. Um, and it's just, we're so lucky to have the teachers that we have. And those teachers are not going to be, uh, it's not going to be a sustainable situation if they don't have people that they can rely on. So another, I'm glad we added that one as well. Um, okay, so just two more quick questions. One is, um, how can people learn more about the work you're doing? I, I learned about you through an article that we can link to. Wondering if there's anything else that you'd like to share.
0: Um, I usually try to post on Twitter, like what are some of the things uh, that I'm doing, and so you can find me at not. Oh, I'm gonna forget my Twitter handle. <laughs> not Ben El Teacher, or just through my name. I think you can find it. We'll link um, to it so that we can find it. Perfect. <laughs> and then I try to to just share some of the work I do with either at the Minnetiisul Conference or um, some of those other conferences. But usually, I just post on Twitter what. I'm trying to do and learn from other people.
1: Great. Which is a place where I got a lot of my information as a teacher. I know there's a really great multilingual learners community uh, on Twitter that are working to really improve the field. So that's great. Last question that I ask everyone who comes on um, is if there is a book or a film or really any kind of resource whatsoever um, that you would recommend that maybe has had a personal, um, or a professional influence on you that you'd like to share with re- uh, uh, listeners?
0: Uh, sure. I think one book that i have cover to cover and I keep going back to is the rethinking ethnic studies, uh, book. And some people might shy away from it because it says ethnic studies and they might think, well, I don't teach ethnic studies, but truly, um, everything that's in that book is something that you can apply to your individual classrooms, uh, whether you are teaching ethnic studies or not. They are um, examples and theories and things that can be incorporated into everyday uh, classes. So that is definitely one book that, that I have read. And then um, beyond that, I think for me, as I try to better understand the different populations in the United States um, and then history, is trying to find good, um, I know it's hard, because I'm like, what is the one book that can give me a good, diverse understanding of history on different populations? And so I've read Indigenous People's History of the US, um, Blood of Born and Fire, Uh, it's a Latin American uh, sort of history. And then right now I'm reading The Making of Asian America, which has been really just uh, informational.
1: Yeah, looking at through different windows, right? Trying to figure out where different people are, different people's experiences. I think that's so important. And what you mentioned about the ethnic studies book, I think, relates to what you're talking about. You don't necessarily have to be teaching those things or even be intensely interested in them for for you to learn something from them. And I think we could all benefit from learning more about the experiences of others that will just make us, I think, um, in the end, more united, empathetic and understanding, which I think um, is certainly something that we need right now. Um, so with that, Natalia Benjamin, it has been a pleasure chatting with you. Congratulations again, um, on all your success and, uh, and, uh, there's a lot that you've kind of, uh, shared with us that I'm sure will be useful to our listeners. So thank you.
0: Thank you so much for having me today.